No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. This is part two of a two-part series about bias, hate, and extremism in rural Canada. If you haven't heard it, I hope you listen to part one, but it's not a prerequisite to listen to this one. In part one, I talked about how most people hold opinions and biases, and that in online spaces, particularly social media platforms, with algorithms that help put items in front of you similar to what you've already clicked on, that this can make it much easier to spread mis- and disinformation. In the first episode, I spoke with Dr. Barbara Perry, director at the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at the Ontario Tech University, and Etienne Quintal, manager of the Online Hate Research and Education Project with the Toronto Holocaust Education Centre. In this episode, I speak with Kurt Phillips, who started doing anonymous online research into hate groups in Canada. But he was doxxed in recent years, losing his anonymity. He's a board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and also a high school teacher in rural Alberta. He names quite a few of the right-wing extremist groups to be aware of, We talk about the players in the Freedom Convoy and what he finds most troubling about the future. What has your research found about extremism, specifically in rural Canada? Well, I think it's pretty clear that it's not confined to the cities. I think uh, a lot of us would like to have put our head in the sands and pretend that that was a a big city problem. So going back to uh, the 1990s with the Heritage Front being a Toronto thing, or uh, Aryan Guard slash Blood and Honor being a Calgary thing. 
the fact is that it's, it's growing in Canada and it's branching out. Uh, we've seen a number of instances where uh, small towns have been targeted by by hate groups for their for their recruiting, and uh, it's it's facilitated in large part by social media, and uh, it's it certainly is a, a danger, uh, something that we're very concerned about. What about the groups? You just mentioned a couple. What are the major ones that people should be concerned about? Some people have heard of them, some people haven't. I've heard of only a few. It's hard because at this point, they, they're they so disparate, it's hard to get a handle on any one group. At one time, and I used to tell people that back when I started doing the research, it was, it was easy because uh, the haters were easily identifiable. They were the ones wearing the Doc Martens and the bomber jackets and the, you know, seek hailing at, at punk concerts and getting their butts kicked because, you know, most punk people don't like neo-Nazis. But now it's it's not as easy. Social media and has, has radicalized a group of people that uh, don't fit the, I guess, the stereotypes. So if we're looking at groups like actual overt neo-Nazi groups, or not even just neo-Nazi, because I think one of the dangers is we tend to conflate uh, different groups and just call them all neo-Nazis or KKK. And I think it's important to distinguish the the ideologies. One of the groups, of course, are are the kind of, the, I refer to them as the leather vest patriots, uh, which have kind of come and gone. There's still some, but groups like the Soldiers of Odin, the Northern Guard, uh, these are individuals and groups that had sprung up, especially in 2017 through 2019, in large part in reaction to the Syrian refugee crisis, the uh, decision by the liberal government to open the doors to more Syrian refugees. Uh, there's this kind of fear of the other coming into Canada. And, and interestingly enough, one of the big fears was that they're going to put them in rural towns. They're going to put them in, in, in your, your small town. This kind of fear of, of the, the Muslim invasion. The Yellow Vest movement came not long after that. Its focus was different, but not too different. They were, you know, focused on, you know, globaliza- globalization, uh, which is often for a lot of these individuals and groups, a kind of a, a weasel word for Jewish oppression, right? So anti-Semitic buzzwords. That's kind of where we were, and then we led into the pandemic, which is has probably been one of the most significant radicalizing. Uh, forces in my lifetime, and I think in many of our lifetimes, uh, you had a combination of, 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 of things that happened at the same time, which made things much worse. Uh, you had lockdowns where people were at home. Uh, you had people relying on on the internet for their information, social media uh, especially. Um, you have algorithms in these social media sites that push certain content to you. If you're interested in this, well, you're going to be interested in this as well. And I would, I, I'm not going to say immoral, but certainly amoral businesses that I should say, it's, I don't perceive them as caring much about the harm that's being done so long as they are making a profit. Uh, I don't see Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram really doing a lot to rein this in. Uh, because it, it cuts into profits. And it's also, I mean, if I'm going to give them the end of the doubt, which I don't generally, but if I'm going to give them the end of the doubt, it's a massive undertaking. It requires them to hire a lot of people. And if your bottom line is making money for your shareholders, um, you know, what's a, a few anti-Semitic slurs that could lead to something horrible? Again, that's being very cynical. I don't know if that's necessarily what's on their mind, uh, but the danger is there. And it's not just the regular social media. It's also other ones that are overtly trying to track those uh, individuals. Uh, Gab, for example, or Parler, uh, these, one, these sites that kind of tout themselves as free speech absolutists. Uh, anything could be said. Anything goes. 
which isn't true either, but uh, they certainly do censor, uh, you know, those people who don't agree with their bottom line, I suppose. But Gab, for example, uh, there's an individual on Gab who posted about his anger towards uh, the Jewish community and, and in, in Pennsylvania and ultimately led to a massacre at a, at a synagogue, a mass shooting at a synagogue. So we see that there are real-world effects. And in Canada, uh, during the refugee crisis, we saw instances of mosques and synagogues being being targeted, arson, uh, vandalism. It's it's not something that we could think is is isolated to the cities. For overt groups, I look at groups such as uh, there's a group called Folks Front, uh, Folks F O L K S Front, uh, and they've been actively uh, trying to recruit in small towns, uh, in, in Alberta and in Ontario, especially, uh, Alberta more so than, uh, than Ontario. It's been, Ontario used to be the, uh, the, the epicenter and then it really did shift on Alberta, but it's gone. It's, it's started up again in, in, in Ontario again. And we're facing these, you know, small to medium sized towns and cities, um, really outside the places that one might expect. The convoy was the convoy started by extremist groups and, grew into something that was out of control or, or what are your thoughts, I guess, on the convoy? I think the convoy is really hard to peg down as to what it was, who was involved. Certainly there were individuals in that movement that were extremists, people we kept tags, tabs on for, for a long time. They got involved in it. Um, so I, I'll say this. I think the there were a lot of people involved in it. I could you and I might disagree about the the ideology behind it, but they they had some concerns about mandates. They had concerns about vaccinations, and you and I may disagree with them on that. But we could have a debate. We have a discussion on it. Um, but again, they were you know, I think you could say radicalized, many of them radicalized by the fear of what they see online, and certain influencers, uh, you know, far right influencers, really kind of continue to push this. So there were a lot of people there that I wouldn't say in and of themselves were extremists, but a lot of the core individuals who became really prominent were extremists. I think of somebody like Pat King, for example, from from Red Deer, uh, who became kind of a key spokesperson um, of that movement, regardless of whether or not the others within that movement, um, the other leadership like Tamara Litch, for example, and uh, B.J. Dicker, uh, whether or not they, they wanted it or not, he was the one who on the ground was the one people sought after. He was the most respected. You had people like uh, Diagalon members who are participating. And Diagalon, of course, has been in the news quite a bit lately uh, with one of their key members, uh, the de facto leader, currently on charges in uh, in Saskatchewan. I'm not sure if it's weapons charges at this point or domestic violence or whatever it might be. They're members there. And of course, this is a group that has had members in Coots, Alberta at the, at the border, one of whom was arrested and charged with uh, planning to murder RCMP officers. We have groups like, well, it's interesting that we had two Canada First groups, both mutually exclusive but similar ideologies. Uh, the one Canada First was formerly a chapter of the Proud Boys, which uh, once it was made in a, a, a terrorist group or designated as a terrorist group, uh, changed the name and uh, decided to dispense with any pretext of being civic nationalists, which they were never really in the first place, and just became overtly racist anti-Semitic. Uh, the other Canada First is was started by a guy uh, in Toronto, in, sorry, in Ontario, uh, he's currently in the United States. Um, you know, he's kind of abandoned the Canada First thing. So it's Canada First until he went to the United States. Now he's America First, interestingly enough. But same thing. They're looking at taking. They they believe 
that they are the future, that they will infiltrate uh, mainstream political parties and they will be able to get their agenda passed. Uh, and their agenda is is pretty terrifying. Um, I would like to say that this is impossible, that that none of this would ever come to fruition. Uh, but we saw on January 6th how close a, uh, a fringe movement can get to uh, taking over a government. And it's it, it was terrifying because that's an instance where the oldest and strongest democracy in the world. You had people, you know, storming the gates, quite literally. In Canada, we had January 6th. And although it wasn't the same kind of, uh, of situation that January 6th was, uh, you still have people like, you know, one of the Diagon members saying he would love to see somebody crash through the gates, that's uh, the walls that are surrounding uh, Parliament right now. Uh, you had the memorandum of agreement uh, that some members wanted to, to submit and basically uh, remove the the elected government from any decision making. So it would be themselves and the, the governor general, whomever they decide it would be their advocate. You had these kind of disparate groups getting together. It's a cliche at this point, but it was a perfect storm. And we saw that uh, for a period of almost a month in late January through middle of February. I read that document. I read that memorandum of understanding as they were driving through and and trying to, you know, say to people, look, it's here. It's on this website, you know. Well, it's also frustrating when you hear now, oh, we didn't have the intelligence. We we weren't sure that we didn't know they were going to stay for as long. I mean, I'm a guy sitting in rural Saskatchewan or rural Alberta in, in quite literally in the basement of my house. And I was able to tell because they were writing about it. Maybe they didn't believe it, but they can't say they didn't the, they didn't know about it because it was telegraphed. The narrative is shifting in Canada. Who is directing that? And and how has it been infiltrating and for how long? I, I have a friend who's often said that Canada is 20 to 30 years behind American trends. I don't know if that's entirely wrong. One thing that I think is is evident is that in Canada, in the United States and, and around the world, uh, we see there are some political parties and some political figures that whether they believe this rhetoric or not, they have come to realize that uh, rage farming it has political dividends for them. If you could get these individuals who kind of believe these conspiracies or have come to accept uh, a alternative worldview, we'll just say, uh, one that most Canadians don't recognize, even if you don't, if you're able to convince them that I'm one of you, I, I mean, wink and a nudge sometimes, you could get a you could get some power from that. I mean, I look in the United States. I think there are a lot of politicians, uh, mainstream, say Republicans, who, you know, looking back ten years ago, they would look at somebody like Donald Trump and and be embarrassed by it. Like, my goodness, we the, I have no interest in doing anything this this person says. But because Donald Trump, regardless of what you think about him, he is very skilled at, at motivating a crowd. We'll say. That's become the base. And if you want to have any success in electoral politics and uh, as a conservative Republican, you need that base. So what are you willing to do to get it? Uh, you see some people like uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, who is willing to do what needs to be done in order to maintain his power. And you have people like Lynn Cheney, who isn't. And we saw, saw what happened. So that's a lesson, unfortunately, I think people have learned from this, is that uh, if you could mine this this rage, if you could look authentic, uh, even if you don't believe a word of it, you could get you could get their support, and it could you know, lead you into various positions in power. Do you think that's what's happening now in Canada? In our federal leaders, our 
we looking at maybe using some tactics that Americans have used in order to gain a more, a larger base? Well, I think populism has always been a part of the, uh, uh, the electoral scene in, in Canada, the United States, and other Western democracies. But because of the the power of, of and, and I, I would regard misuse of social media, the fringe voices that used to be isolated and used to think that they were alone, they, they kept what they viewed as quiet because they didn't want to be you know mocked by, by their neighbors. They're able to find communities. And in finding those communities, they gain more power. They gain more influence. They... They're able to, I guess you said, you guess lobby uh, for their ideas. So it's not just at the federal level. I think it's also at the provincial level. I think you could see that to a degree in in Alberta. You could see that in Saskatchewan. You could see that in Ontario. Political figures, whether they are currently in power or have been in power, they're trying to ride this to some sort of uh, uh, some sort of electoral success, whatever that might look like. How do you think rural folks can counter? or protect themselves against mis and disinformation. Because the reason I ask that is because there's all kinds of tiny town Facebook pages administrated by who knows who's affiliated with them. And they're posting things that people believe and share. And and so what's your advice to folks looking at this thinking, wait a minute, how do they determine what's true and what's not? Well, one area that I talk to my students about is is being aware of, of your own biases. Uh, and that's tricky because uh, we, we like to think that we're all objective, rational human beings. But this is a, a line I've used for a while now, is that, you know, cynics believe that all politicians lie and they, they just want a politician that will tell them the truth. And I think that's a lie in of itself. I think that Many of us, not all of us, but many of us, we want politicians who will tell us the lies that we already believe, that we've already come to accept. And if you have somebody telling you, especially after years of people disagreeing with you, uh, and now you have somebody, oh, I'm one of you, I, I, this is, this, I, I'm, I support you. Well, really look into what they actually do believe. We talk about critical thinking and recognizing those biases and realizing, well, okay, do do I want this information to be true? Maybe, but is it true? And I'll give you an example for myself. I, ideologically, I am I'm not a conservative. Um, I uh, if I were an American, I would certainly not vote for Mr. Trump. And somebody sent me a link. Uh, this is during his his administration, as when he was in power, suggesting that uh, the Wharton School of of educate of uh, a business Wharton School of a business. Somebody leaked his his IQ test, and uh, Donald Trump has an IQ of 85 or whatever it was. And as a person who's not a big fan of, of Mr. Trump, there's a part of me that wanted to believe, and, and also, I mean, my own sense of superiority, that, well, of course it's got to be true. But there's that niggling sense that, well, you got you to gotta look at this, even though it's something you want to believe, you got to actually investigate it. So you do, and you find, oh, well, these the pictures they're using are stock photos. This person was never, that they name here as a, the dean of the school, that's uh, you know not true. Um, you dig into it and find, okay, it, it's not true at all. And that's hard because there's something that you want to support and you want to believe, yeah, it, it's it's easy to do so, easy to fall into the trap. And I have. There have been times on Twitter where somebody tweeted something, I read it, I, I retweeted it without thinking. Then I investigate, like, oh, shoot, I need to go back and delete that. 
I think it's being aware of our own uh, our own foibles and our own potential failings and being humble enough to realize we could be wrong. But that's that's a challenge for a lot of us. It's vulnerability. And I think you're talking about confirmation bias. And I think we're all guilty of that. And, and because we're so polarized right now, and there's so much anger and emotion attached to how we feel about things, uh, I've been guilty too of, of, because I don't want to believe that it's true. I don't want to believe that somebody has mm-hmm. this ideology. How do we get back to, I think at one point, in my lifetime at least, there was more of a center to politics. There was left, right, and then somewhere in the middle, and, and some politicians tried to work together, and we all were confused about who we were going to vote for, <laughs> and you know, looked at the people and their policies, and do you think we'll, we can get back to that? And, and if so, how? It's funny because I think we often look to a golden age of politics and look back in the past and think, well, there was a time when we were able to get along and you could disagree without being disagreeable. And it's certainly more polarizing today, but we've always had these instances where people were toxic. And I think there's a tendency to both sides this. I don't think it is a both sides. I think there there is one one side that, that has tended to be more on, on the polarization. How do we get back there? I think it's 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 tricky because I think it's a matter of treating people with dignity and respect. And right now you see online people aren't willing to do that. One one of the horrible habits I have as a teacher is when I'm reading the the news online, because I, I teach current events and I want to keep abreast of what's going on, I, I have a horrible habit of reading the comment section. And I, I, I'm reminded of, of Star Wars when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, you'll never see a greater hive of a scum and villainy. Uh, it's, it's just the most toxic environment. People are miserable to each other. And they are in part because they don't see each other as human beings. They see each other as just a, a name and an avatar. They don't recognize the humanity of the other person behind it. I look at that and think, well, one thing I'd love to see, and I understand the I, so. From the point of view of, of why the news did it, I think I know why. I think they wanted this was a great idea to have people actively engage in the news, the news discuss and debate the issues. Um, it's it's not working. I think I think we got to recognize this has failed because I think and and maybe one thing that that the news agencies can do, so CBC, Global, whatever, get rid of the comment sections. That's I think that's going to do go a long way to to try to mitigate this kind of toxic. Uh, environment. The other issue is that people are more intent on, there. it seems that many people are less interested in getting policies that they support pass than, and excuse my language, pissing off their opposition. Um, I see people that just want to own the libs and that's all well and good, but what are you actually accomplishing? You're not getting any policies through and you're just antagonizing people who might be potential voters uh, for your party in the future. So for me, it's a matter of, you know, trying to remember that we're human beings and treating people with dignity. But I also think it's about silencing people because there's many of us that don't want to weigh in because it's kind of a wasted resource time because Hmm. you're not going to change their mind. They're convinced and they're angry about it and they cannot 
unravel themselves from that vi- that bias. And so I think that's that's a hard part of it. There's also the paradox of tolerance that mm-hmm. if you tolerate everything, you could create a society that becomes incredibly intolerant. I look at Nazi Germany, right? And and the idea, well, we need to tolerate this this ex- these extremist views because if we don't, then we we're, we're censoring them and we need to be an environment where all views and all ideas of equal weighting. I think we have a similar sense instance here. We have uh, again, I, I, I keep harping on social media, but simply it's it's one of the great drivers of this kind of polarization at this point. You have people who use it to to provide you know, spread incredibly toxic ideas, and oftentimes those ideas are in viol- or those that the, the language they use is often in violation of their the social media's terms of service. You know, deal with that. Like if people are violating terms of service delete them, remove them. It's not censorship. Censorship is if the government is going to arrest you for, for speech, they're not getting arrested. They're just being deplatformed. And I use the example, I mean, if I walk into your house and start shouting, you could ask me to leave. You don't have to get me, let me stay there. You're not censoring me by telling me to get out. Same thing. You mentioned social media, and I think that that is the, the, the prime platform. Folks are recruiting, spreading disinformation, misinformation. But there's print copies of things like Druthers that are being dropped off in little community restaurants where they're not even really noticing, Mm -hmm. but here they are. And because it's in print, some folks think that it's actual fact. And, And that's another part of it is determining what is fact and what is fiction. And we have news deserts in rural Canada because the big companies pulled up stakes and a lot of the of rural folks don't trust mainstream media because that idea has been put in their mm-hmm. head that you know we, they can't be trusted they're not telling us the truth they're not telling us the whole truth they're not they're not reporting on my little town and here's this publication that tells me what i believe already and there, yes. it's finally, we have a truth teller. Uh, we have we, we have that. We have larger ne- brothers. Of course, is is becoming bigger. Unfortunately, uh, we have the Ep- Epoch Times, which has become significant. You got Rebel Media. Again, these these networks, whether they're uh, online or they're print, and again, print has that kind of gravitas, right? You know, if it's printed, it must be real, as you as you noted, it must be accurate. Um, but I think we need to do a better job. Um, in all sectors of, of trying to create better critical thinkers. People are able to do the research on their own to recognize, well, this has biases and you know, where do we go from there, essentially? One, it's one thing I do in my classroom. I, I make a point of teaching critical thinking. I've used a number of examples in, in my classroom to, uh, you know, in, including, you know, I, I, years ago I used to do uh, Animal Farm and we, we talked about it as a, you, you know, Animal Farm is a wonderful novel. You could do it as, oh, it's a bunch of animals take over the farm and it doesn't work out so well. Or the allegory about the uh, the, uh, the Russian Revolution. And at one point they talk about revisionism or they deal with the, there's revisionism in history. I bring some examples of, of revisionism to the classroom and we kind of pick it apart. What are they trying to do? What's the agenda here? I think that we need to have that as a, a, a greater focus in, in schools. And it's going to take a long time before we develop a, a generation of people who are really able to critically think about the issues, uh, especially in an environment where they're surrounded and inundated with with uh, social media, they're they're online all the time. They're always connected to some technology. I, I look around and I see a number of, of young people on phones constantly. It's going to take a while 
to to teach our uh, teach our gen- the next generation to critically think and be able to discern what is accurate, what's not. Uh, but I think it's a project that we need to engage in. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What do you find the most troubling about the future and the most hopeful about the future? I think you just kind of nailed part of the hopeful part. But the, what's the most troubling about the future? This isn't going away. It's escalating. We're seeing more division. We're seeing more polarization, more rage. And you know, one of the concerns that I would have is where what's the outlet for that rage? We've already seen numerous examples of people posting you know, threats towards the, say, the prime minister or the uh, various premiers or political figures, health professionals uh, being attacked, uh, you know, uh, verbally. At what point does it become physical? Um, in some cases, it has become physical. My big fear is what happens if this leads to some sort of a period of, of real political violence. We see the escalation. I mean, we go from somebody throwing stones at, at Justin Trudeau to uh, to where does it go from there? Uh, and we see in societies where political violence becomes a norm, uh, democracy is, is endangered and fails. Um, so that's my concern. Um, whether it'll get there, I don't know, but it's something we need to be aware of because just because we live in Canada, we're not immune to it. We can't can, we can't pretend that oh it's over there in those countries over there those those uh, you know banana republics or pinpock dictatorships. We saw in the United States it's it, it, the strongest democracy in the world. Uh, if it could happen there, it can happen here. Uh, where I'm hopeful is I've often told people that I think human beings are inherently decent, inherently good. Uh, we might be misguided sometimes. We might be lost. But I think everybody can be redeemed. Uh, very few people in this world are lost forever. And I think that uh, the the idea of finding our common humanity again and, and realizing that, you know, politically, I might not agree with you, but I could recognize you, you know, and the views you have. You think it's best for this province or the best for this country. Don't agree with you, but I don't think you're evil incarnate. And I would hope you would feel the same way about me. I love that. That's a great a great place to end. Thank you again for your time and your expertise. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fred. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are... Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection 
into the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 